The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, We're going to be joined in a few minutes by the public policy editor of the Financial Times, Peter Foster, in order to discuss how this whole Brexit thing is going so far. But uh, Simon Carswell, our own public affairs editor, is here too to discuss that. But first, Simon, before we get to that, as your job title suggests, you have a pretty broad brief. It covers many of the other most important things going on in the country today, not least uh, COVID-19 and the third surge, which we're in the midst of at the moment. You've had the brief, really, of looking at the numbers. Yeah, I've been looking at the numbers and the impact in particular settings, uh, hospitals, ICUs and nursing homes, which is really the front line of the pandemic and where which the areas that are getting hit most. And if you look at the figures, like they're, they're, they're just extraordinary. They're pretty horrific. I mean, it's been so much press in the last while showing that Ireland had the highest COVID infection rate in the world last week. And if you want to look at something that would describe exponential growth or figures that would show it, you'd only have to look at Ireland to know just how bad it's been. I mean, the figures themselves... It took seven months to get to 50,000 cases. It took two more months to get to 75,000 cases. And in the last month, it's doubled 250,000 cases. That's a huge increase. And from that flows problems with hospitals. I mean, no hospital system can cope with that kind of level of exponential growth. It's just huge. And right now, we're looking at in the order of about 1,750 people in hospital, which is almost double the number that were in hospital at the peak of the first wave. We have 160 people in ICUs, which is just five more than was in ICUs at the height of the first wave. And 89 of those are on ventilators at the moment. And um, if you look at individual hospitals, 14 of the country's hospitals have no spare ICU beds and four of the country's hospitals have no spare general beds. So this is a huge crisis. This third wave is severe, it's unprecedented, it's worse than anything we've seen before and it's all attributed back to the fact that we reopened things over Christmas and it seems to have been for many people a normal Christmas which it should never have been. What are the best worst case scenarios over the next few weeks in terms of the capacity of our medical system to cope with this? Well if you talk to anyone in a hospital ICU and I've spoken to several of them across the country they're all dusting off their surge plans. I mean, the, the COVID was expected to hit the hospitals in March and April, and a lot of the hospitals had prepared these surge plans. And a surge plan is essentially, where do I find ICU beds in my hospital? And the challenge is not beds. An ICU bed is an ICU bed because of the number of people that are staffing it. You need people across all different uh, medical specialities because of the intense intensity of the care of that person. And it's not so much physical beds. They need people from across the hospital system. And the difficulty is, is that you need to draw nurses in particular from other parts of the hospital. So that means switching off non-COVID. The first wave 
brought a benefit of non-COVID being switched off. So with that severe lockdown that we had in March and April, people weren't driving, people weren't out walking, people weren't playing sports. So all of the regular injuries, you know, the broken hips, the broken bones, the car crashes, those things weren't happening. So there was really non-COVID. And I mean, if you talk to any doctors now, they're startled by the fact that there just was non uh, so much non-COVID. They didn't know where all the stroke victims and all the heart attack victims had gone. That does not exist now. What they have now is all of the regular non-COVID healthcare that they have to deal with on top of this third wave. So that's bringing increased pressure. And unfortunately, it's going to mean that people who require cancer care or emergency surgery, be it elective or not, may not get the care they need during this third wave. So really, it's it's a, it's a horrendous time uh, for the hospital system and um, it's going to be a very grim number of weeks ahead. The best worst case scenario to, to your question, I mean, I think you're looking at, we had a, a worrying foretaste, I think, of what's to come with the new figures that were released yesterday on the number of deaths. There were 46 deaths announced on Tuesday and 44 of those were in January. And that's the highest death figure that we've seen reported on a daily basis since April 28th. So that figure is very worrying. Positive is that the cases are declining because we are on lockdown, our third lockdown. But uh, what has to feed through the system is the fact that all of those people, those vast numbers of people that got infected over the Christmas period are going to be getting seriously ill. They're going to be entering hospital and some of them, unfortunately, are going to be entering hospital ICUs and dying. So the time lag between people getting sick and people requiring hospital care tends to be around two weeks or perhaps a little bit more. Um, the further deterioration into ICU and indeed fatality could be a week or two more. So basically there's up to a month lag between the peak of this thing and the community and its most dire impacts on people's lives. It's Yes, it's in, it's in that kind of time frame. I think you're going to see it's we're in the middle of, of January now. You're going to see a very difficult remainder of January and into February. And this is the time that hospitals are just swamped anyway. I mean, we have trolley crisis crises every year, this time of year, every year. And I put that put on top of that, this COVID crisis. So yes, you're going to see a very difficult coming weeks in the hospital system. And there are there's hope to be taken from the caseload decreasing. I mean, we've seen some figures last week, the number of GP referrals continue to decline over the course of last week. The positivity rate in testing declined to below 20%. Those are positives. But unfortunately, the damage has been done. The infections have been passed between people and within households. And people have this virus now. And it's just a matter of time for some of them before, if they haven't already required hospital care, they will require hospital care. So it is a very, very worrying time. Now, we know that the most dangerous place to be during this pandemic, certainly during the first surge and really since then as well, um, is in a nursing home. Um, how are the nursing homes holding up? Well, the nursing homes, as I say, that was really the, the first wave hit the nursing homes rather than the hospitals. Um, and we learned a lot about what happens with the virus and how it behaves when it gets into nursing homes. And you have to keep the virus out of nursing homes. So infection and prevention control measures were taken by the nursing homes. In the first wave, they were unprepared. Um, many of them would say they were abandoned by the health service initially. They did not have the personal protective equipment they required. A lot of nursing home residents were transferred back from hospitals to the nursing homes to make space in the hospitals for the anticipated first wave that didn't really come. 
and those people who were transferred back to nursing homes had the virus and infected the nursing homes. And we know that if there are not the infection prevention control measures and if there is no PPE in nursing homes, it will rip through nursing homes. This virus is um, extremely dangerous when it gets into a congregated setting with elderly people um, who are living very close together. And in some cases, in some nursing homes, they live in multi-bed rooms, which is hugely dangerous. What's happened since then and in, in the, into this third wave is that we have learned an awful lot about how the virus, what happens to the virus in nursing homes. So nursing homes have prepared, uh, they have got decent supplies of PPE. Um, where there are uh, outbreaks, public health moves very, very quickly now and um, nursing homes have far more support from the public health services now, which is a good thing and very, very important. A critical tool that's helped nursing homes in the summer when it was quiet and there was a lull in infections, the HSE introduced serial testing of staff at nursing homes. And that's really, really helped. It's like an early warning system. It's fortnightly and they go in and test um, staff and they're on the seventh cycle and they've tested tens of thousands of, of people working in nursing homes who are um, who may be asymptomatic. And the whole point is that this virus gets in because no one is showing. Some people are showing no symptoms. And if they're showing no symptoms, then they can bring it in. So the serial testing has been very, very effective. And what they've done in the last couple of days is they've said, well, we're going to increase the intensity of the serial testing and they've moved to week weekly. So they've really strengthened that early warning system. Unfortunately, though, um, because of the level of infection within the community, um, it's meant that it's just it's got into nursing homes. If it's if it's if the virus is is, is so uh, so widespread within the community, it's inevitable that it will get into nursing homes. And we've seen outbreaks in more than 100 nursing homes. At the peak of the first wave, we saw in about 200, uh, the order of about 250 outbreaks in nursing homes out of the 580 odd that are in the country. So nursing homes are not at the same level that we're at. But unfortunately, when it does get into nursing homes, it does cause major problems. I reported today that a nursing home in South Dublin in Dundrum, Simpsons Hospital, has had a, had 15 deaths over the Christmas period. And what's striking about the outbreaks in the nursing homes um, is that when it does get in, it, can, it runs rampant and it can kill a lot of people very quickly. Uh, and th those 15 deaths in Simpsons Hospital occurred in an outbreak that began in December. And even in the best nursing homes in the country, like we saw Brookhaven Group, which is a, a very good group that runs five nursing homes, they managed to keep it out through the course of the pandemic and it got into one of their nursing homes, Drummoning uh, Nursing Home in Stradbally in County Leash, where it's killed six people. And that came into that nursing home through a resident who was transferred back from a hospital. And they've had serial testing, um, but still it's managed to get in. So we've seen examples of this virus as it behaved in the first wave of nursing homes. So in the third wave, we have the double whammy, not just all the issues that the hospitals are facing, but also there are issues now at nursing homes, which is which is adding to the worry. The nightmare in this situation has always been that we become Bergamo in March of last year, that the health system is not able to give people the treatment that they need. Now, there's quite a lot of complexity in that, in terms of the sophistication of medical treatment, understanding of the disease has changed. Um, the question of when intubation in an ICU environment is an is an appropriate treatment, particularly for somebody who's who's quite old. It's not a it's not a black and white thing. It's not the, the very simplistic life and death choice which it was presented as sometimes last year. But there is a fear, isn't there, that people who might survive won't survive because the service isn't there to help them through. There is, and ICU doctors I spoke to in the last week were saying. People shouldn't assume two things. They shouldn't assume that the vaccines are going to help in this wave. And they shouldn't assume that we 
uh, because we've been dealing with COVID cases for the best part of nine months now that we understand how to prevent really seriously ill people from dying from this virus. They said that's not the case. We have, yes, we do understand the virus better. Yes, there are certain treatments like steroids that work at particular points when the people are severely ill. But um, we still have the same difficulty with managing this virus and treating this virus in seriously ill people. And um, one ICU doctor pointed out to me that Ireland had actually had a very good rate um, of, of survival of ICUs. It was in the order of about 21% of people who survived ICU in the first wave. And they attribute that directly to the fact that they never got overwhelmed. So if you can manage very seriously ill people in ICUs with the right staff and the right resources, you can save more people. So if you get to a situation like Northern Italy, like Bergamo, where you have an overwhelmed hospital system, it follows that you can't provide the same level of care to everyone who comes into your hospital. And it then follows that you cannot save as many people as you normally could if you had a full complement of ICU staff. And where we're getting into the stage, as I said earlier, where we have makeshift ICUs or surge ICUs or ICUs in parts of the hospital that really aren't ICUs, like high dependency units, where you wouldn't have the same complement of nurses looking after patients then you're going to encounter problems. An overwhelmed overwhelmed health system cannot save the same number of people as a regular health system. Finally, on this subject, Simon, do you think there's going to be a political price to pay for the decisions that were made in late November, which have undoubtedly led to where we are now? I think there's going to be increasingly um, increased pressure on government over the coming month when we look at the number of cases that are going to be coming through our hospital system and the death toll rising on a daily basis over the coming weeks. I think there are going to be a lot of questions asked of the decision to move from level five to level three plus or whatever way you want to describe it, but basically the decision to open up the country in December for Christmas. And I think questions are going to be asked about the decision not to shut down the country in mid-December once we realise that we were heading on this exponential growth path, that line shooting up up, up the chart. And if that, uh, that that decision was not taken to, to cancel Christmas, that there wasn't the political leadership for someone to go on television and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to do the Christmas that you want this year. We're not actually going to do a Christmas that um, the Christmas we need to do is that you need to stay home and not visit anyone else. And unfortunately, you cannot mix households. The decision to reopen hospitality in the first half of the December and then to reopen to allow households to mix in the week over Christmas, I think will deserve significant scrutiny. If you look at the Neffet letter at the end of November, they, space, they specifically said that if you reopen hospitality, you should not allow households to mix in the period over Christmas. And what they're effectively saying is if you allow hospitality to reopen, you are going to allow the virus to spread through the community. And then if you allow households to open, you're going to push that virus into households after it has spread through the community. And they Neffet warned against that and the government did it. And I think there are going to be, it's going to be huge pressure on the government to explain that decision. And we know the pressures that government was under. We know the pressures that they were under from businesses to reopen and businesses needed the sales that they got over Christmas. But I think it's going to be a very high price to have paid for that. There is the added com uh, complexity of the strain, this new highly infectious virus, which is up to 70% more transmissible. But I think um, the strain really only explains the level of growth and this, the level of spread. The decision to reopen the country explains the initial spread across the community. If 
this strain, this new strain was in the country as Killian de Gascon, an EFIT member and the head of the National Virus Reference Laboratory, has said the virus strain was here in November. We didn't see increase, caseload increase. Um, we didn't see cases increase through November as a result of the strain because we were in lockdown. When the lockdown was lifted, then we saw the cases increase. So it was the decision to reopen rather than the strain. It was the decision to allow increased socialising, not the strain that led to the um, the, the spread of the virus. The, the strain helped the spread and it helped increase the spread. Thanks for that, Simon. We'll leave it there for the moment. I'm joined, we're joined now by Peter Foster of the Financial Times. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. I've been observing with great interest your coverage and indeed your Twitter feed as well, up to dates on how this whole Brexit thing is going. Um, how is it going? Swimmingly, no. Um, you know, the, the short answer to that question is it, it's too early to tell. We've had um, pretty much 50% of even average January flows across the short straits, Dover, Calais. Um, normally we'd expect 6,000 in January a day, it's been less than 3,000. Uh, that's going to start to ramp up uh, this week. Um, you know, what we've seen is a lot of hauliers staying out the market, relying on pre-Christmas stockpiles. And therefore, we haven't really um, had tested uh, the extent to which um, a shortage of uh, customs agents uh, that the industry has been warning about will really impact the ability of hauliers to move particularly um, complex goods. So it's not a very helpful answer, but I think... The government knows that you know that, that they've had it easy so far, and I hear trepidation in Whitehall about what's to come. Uh, I think everyone will sort it out uh, uh, over time, but but we have to wait and see. I mean, you know, the early warning signs you can see there with the with the Scottish uh, seafood industry, you know, six to uh, sixteen hours to complete paperwork for a mixed load, um, but it's early days. Yeah, talk to us about that um, fish issue because obviously it was. Very significant in the in the final in the final days and weeks of the negotiations, much more significant than than its proportion of the UK economy. So there does seem to be a certain irony that it seems to be the area that's being hit worse in these early days. Yeah, it's one of those things that that is obviously the tip of the spear because fish is highly perishable, so it needs to move very quickly. It's also um, complex because you not only need an export health certificate, but you need catch certificates, origin certificates, etc. Uh, and it's all going through Boulogne-sur-Mer in France now. And so what you're hearing from the fishing industry is that, you know, deliveries that were taking 24 hours are now taking four days. Uh, some of the big hauliers are now refusing to take um, mixed loads, groupage loads from smaller suppliers where you take um, uh, loads from you know supply A, B, C, and D, lump them in a lorry together because um, the current EU export health certificate makes that incredibly complex. Um, I guess we'll talk, won't we, about about Ireland, uh, but they're definitely finding that uh, from Great Britain into NI this issue of groupage of what you do when you pick up a load of chicken from one depot, a load of pork from another depot, a load, a load of beef from the third depot. How you uh, uh, seal each one of those pickups with an export health certificate to the satisfaction of an official vet who will stamp the whole lot at the end of the line. Um, you know, these are, you could call them teething problems or they're just, you know, what happens when you apply rest of world trade processes to, um, you know, the, the torrent of trade that goes across uh, the short straits and, and the Irish Sea, uh, you know, which has grown up inside the EU single market where trade is frictionless. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to see, I think, how trade reorientates itself, you know, to, to, to deal with some of these processes. And that will take time and it will be sticky at the beginning. 
Yeah, and we might look at it as kind of more long-term things in a moment. But Simon, if I could bring you in here, that groupage is my new word for uh, 2021. Not a word I knew existed before the 1st of January, but now I, I think I have a vague grasp on what it means. As Simon says, it's these multiple consignments in a, in a single container, which used to travel frictionlessly across European borders. And that's no longer the case. And we're sort of seeing some of the impact of that here as well, aren't we? That the impact really seems to be that these are very often deliveries to smaller companies who aren't perhaps as well set up or as well resourced to deal with the paper work issues. And in some cases, they're just saying, we're not going to ship anymore. Um, well, I think you learned a new word, groupage, but I think you may need to unlearn it or you don't need to know it uh, for a long period of time because I think groupage might disappear. Um, grouped loads on a, on a lorry is, it's a way of a haulier of making more money, making more profit that if you deliver more goods for more people, you'll make more money. And the problem with that is, is every piece of item every item in the back of your lorry requires a certificate or a declaration and if you have 100 items it just follows that it, if you require 100 pieces of of paperwork for each each item you're not going to be able to to do that you don't have a customs agent to manage all that and it just won't be practical anymore so it's a real it's a real problem i i think that um the two issues that ireland is facing currently is one is the land bridge getting goods to and from mainland europe and the other issue is the irish british trade which is a far bigger issue about a billion euro of trade a week goes between ireland and britain and um about 170,000 of about 1.2 million units that go to britain go on to mainland europe so um the difficulty that businesses have currently is is that the customs processes, all the paperwork that's required and the food and regulatory checks that are required for food and plant materials, and um, businesses just weren't ready for that. And at the moment, it's bad now, uh, but it's going to get far worse. Um, the benefit, as Peter said, of, of pre-Brexit stockpiling, that's going to be worked through in the coming weeks. So they're going to work through all the goods that are in warehouses and need to get more goods in. And the grace period of three months that exists for Northern Ireland supermarket chains on the certification, EU certification of goods, that grace period is ending in three months. And then when the UK customs kick in in July, uh, at the moment, the problems we're seeing are largely for imports from Britain. Uh, there really are not the level of checks that will be coming uh, between Ireland for goods moving from Ireland to Britain. So we're really only seeing, uh, it's a foretaste really of, of what's to come and the freight volumes are extraordinarily low currently. And that's allowing systems to manage the very, very few uh, volume, very small volume of goods that's passing through uh, British and Irish ports. But when that increases, you're going to see, as Peter says, those 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 systems tested very severely. Um, and even with the low volume that is coming through. Revenue commissioners have had to ease up and relax some of the rules. There's a couple of different, few different things that uh, importers have to do. And the revenue said, well, actually, don't worry about one of these things. We're going to send you with this emergency or general code. You just tap that into your computer and that allows some of your goods to move. So even they've had to do that, even on the small volume of, tr of, of freight that's coming through. So there are problems now, but they're going to get much more severe uh, as the weeks and months uh, pass. So if we're in this slightly phony war kind of period now, Peter, because the the volumes are so low, if some of the problems being faced are, are teething problems or can be resolved to some extent, where are the fears in, in British industry and in the import-export that, that things could really get really bad and really messy when flows return to normal in February or March? 
So I think um, there's a number of fears. One is, uh, you know, the trade that will no longer happen. So you may have seen reports in the first week after Brexit about, which actually impacts Ireland, about this issue of hubbing. When you bring goods from Europe uh, into the UK, um, they can come in zero tariff, zero quota, as long as they're 50% EU made, as it were, or around 50%, the so-called rules of origin. The problem comes is that when you put them on the UK market, you import them. If you then break them up and redistribute them, repackage them and bring them on, you know, often to Ireland, you're back paying the full common external tariff. Um, you know, so you can use transit. So you can transit goods. This is, as it were, the reverse land bridge. You can transit goods um, into Ireland, but that is not how the system works at the moment. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the food and drink industry tell me, the, the clothing industry, retail industry, you know, tell me that, um, you know, that the British government saying use transit is just not workable. So, you know, those processes, I think, are going to have to change. And that is going to mean more cost. Uh, it might mean less choice, etc., and some disruption in the short term. I think the other big um, concern is where you slightly longer term, but what happens with sort of investments? So I was talking to a chemical company the other day and a medical devices company that would import into the UK and then distribute from the UK to clients all across the EU. But when you're moving things like chemicals uh, or medical devices, if you do that from the UK, then each of your importers has to be compliant with the REACH regulation in the case of chemicals, the medical devices directive in the case of uh, medical devices. And so what they're doing is simply splitting their supply lines and importing direct into the EU, setting up hubs in Poland and Germany to deal with that traffic. And that, of course, means shrinking their footprint in the UK, less investment. Uh, and I think what we don't know about Brexit is the extent to which that that process, that bureaucratic curtain, as it were, that's descended between the UK and Ireland, the UK and the EU, um, will alter... Uh, uh, investment patterns uh, uh, and trade patterns between uh, um, the two blocks. Uh, and I think that is a, a, a big concern, uh, uh, you know, in the medium term. Because, I mean, you're describing here very sophisticated logistical operations which have developed over over decades, really, uh, in terms of, you know, manufacturing processes and shipping and distribution and all those kind of things. And presumably in many of these industries operating on very tight margins because they're competitive industries. So once, you know, a, a very small shift in, in the cost base can cause you either to stop operating or, as you say, relocate back into the EU proper. Indeed. And, and, and essentially, the government, you know, was so politically driven with this trade deal, you know, it prioritised sovereignty over uh, pragmatism a time and time again, you know, when the aviation industry said, can we stay uh, linked to AR, so the European Aviation Safety Agency? No. Could we be part of REACH, the chemicals database? No. Could we get a waiver for safety and security declarations, which now, which Norway and Sweden, uh, Norway and Switzerland have no, you know, time and again, industry asked for pragmatic approaches and time and again, they were told no. And so what you've essentially got is the British government saying, look, business will work this out. You know, we can throw, you know, a lot of grit into this system and it will just work it out. And they may be right about that. You know, business is very inventive. Um, it remains to be seen. That, but on the other hand, they may have underestimated um the fact that the people who move things and make things generally know how their processes work. And, um, you know, it is very difficult, actually, to get people to give you chapter and verse on how this is going to shake down over the next year, the next two years. 
Uh, and, 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 you know, that's because it's about human behavior. Will people be bothered with the paperwork? To what extent um, will they carry on being bothered with the paperwork or will they try and get around it or stop trading altogether? You know, that's a human behavior issue. Uh, and so I think, you know, the government is in the dark, actually. It's taken this enormous punt, frankly, um, with supply chains, with the way in which, you know, we do 43% of our goods exports, you know, nothing on services. You know, what will it mean for fashion models and hairstylists that do fashion shoots all around Europe? What will it mean for a small jewellery maker in London who goes to a trade show in Paris to exhibit their wares? All that stuff is now wrapped up in, in ironically, the same bureaucratic Brussels red tape that Brexiteers spent three decades railing against. Um, but, you know, as I said, right at the top, it's not very helpful, but, you know, we are going to have to wait and see how this stuff shakes down. From an Irish perspective, Simon, I mean, we've heard quite a lot about these new direct shipping lines going from Ross Lair to, to ports on, on continental Europe. We look around at, uh, well, if you walk down any uh, shopping street in Dublin now, right now, you won't see any shops open at all. But when they are open, most of them are British brand names, British retailers, British supermarkets. Um is this going, going to have to change because of that? You know, are we not going to are we going to be going to something else rather than Tesco or Marks and Spencers in five years' time? Well, it could. I think what could happen, two things could happen. You could see Tesco and Marks and Spencers staying and buying more Irish products to be able to sell to Irish customers because of all of the paperwork and customs checks and regulatory food checks, most importantly, for, for the retail supermarket chains that they have to manage. They could just buy Irish and say, well, we're going to stay in Ireland, but we're going to source locally. Um, or you could see them leave the Irish market because their whole business is, is, is based around a supply chain that relies on product moving in and out of Britain. And in that scenario, you could see either Irish retailers likes of Dunn stores or uh, you could see um, Lidl, Lidl and Ali, the German discounters, or, or Supervalue, the Irish-owned chain, increase their presence by taking out some of the British retailers in the Irish market. Or you could see um, European supermarket chains like a Carrefour from France coming in and opening up supermarkets in Ireland because uh, they just can't manage that because uh, British retailers can't manage that bureaucratic curtain that Peter is referring to. And I mean, the government has actively encouraged businesses in the Republic of Ireland to avoid the kind of Irish sea of, of red tape by saying, go directly, ship directly to Europe, use the direct ferries. And that's all well and good. But the difficulty is, is there is a limited capacity on the direct services. And even though we've seen a new shipping line, DFDS, the, the big sh- the Danish shipping line coming in with this new Rosslare Dunkirk route, the problem is, is it's a 24 hour route um, at best into those key uh, road transit networks that bring people to markets and suppliers in mainland Europe. So it adds a day on to the um, shipping of goods. And when you're in the fresh food business and the just-in-time business where time-sensitive goods have to move quickly, a, a day a day longer is a, a day more of costs. Um, it's a day less on uh, supermarket shelves. So it's going to cause problems. But I think even in the first two weeks of Brexit, we've seen that the supermarket chains in the Republic of Ireland that don't have problems are Lidl, Aldi uh, and Supervalue. And it's because they are shipping direct from Europe and they've just decided we're going to bypass Britain and all these Brexit checks that we have to manage. Peter, I know you're under time pressure, so I'm going to let you go. But I just want to ask you before you do, some of this stuff is quite arcane and the, the impact of it won't necessarily be felt immediately. You know, there may be, you know, some irritant, irritants in terms of what's available in shops, but the longer term impact on, on British industry is it will probably not be visible for a while. So 
Is there a political impact this year in terms of how Boris Johnson's government is likely to do? I think there are local elections due uh, in in the summer. Scottish elections are are, are looming large. Is, is are we likely to see the impact of the changes that have happened since the first of January on the way that people are likely to vote? You know, it, it is a it is a good question, and I think probably not is a short answer. You know, most of us are not importers and exporters. Most of us are not hauliers. We're not the ones stuck in the queue. Yeah, we see the queues from the comfort, you know, if they arrive of our, of our living rooms on the 10 o'clock news. But, um, you know, as long as as long as long the supermarkets, you know, aren't stripped bare, and how long will that last? Um, you know, I think the government's tack is to throw as much money as possible and as much easements and derogations as possible, although, you know, that will come back to bite them probably in July when this new cliff edge comes down. And simply to sort of say there's nothing to see here. I mean, you remember Boris Johnson when he announced the deal, said there are no technical barriers to trade. In fact, you know, it, this deal might actually might increase trade with Europe. Um, you know, the government is determined. You might have seen uh, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, saying there is no border in the Irish Sea in a tweet. I think, you know, they are going to try and create this counter-narrative. Now, whether the reality on the ground cuts through, we just have to see. What I think you might see is in localised industries, it does. So, for example, the Scottish fishermen, if they don't sort that out, you can see how the SNP, for example, are going to use that as a stick with which to beat um, Boris's Brexit and Boris Johnson and the Tories uh, in the in the May elections in Scotland. You know, because although in aggregate these problems may not land, it, in particular industries, they might so, so you know, it's possible that in the auto sector, for example, you start to see disinvestment because Japanese companies that rely on Japanese parts can't make rules of origin thresholds, you know, the, you know to make the car tariff free, for example. So they announce plant closures or they start to disinvest, those kind of things where you start to see impacts on industries, particularly chemicals, pharmaceuticals, etc., in red wall seats. That might play politically. Um, but they have to be quite severe. I think, you know, if anything of the politics of the last three or four years has taught us is they have to be quite severe to cut through. And so I think it's quite possible that Brexit will do quite a lot of systemic damage to the UK economy. Um, there will be import substitutions, which no doubt Brexiteers will trumpet as, you know, great wins for British business. But, you know, the truth is that you you know, trade with the advanced economies on your doorstep. That's what gives your drives your competition, your productivity. Is what gives your economy muscle tone. Is going to be frustrated, uh, and that means probably, uh, you know, when I talk to economists, John Springford at the CER, for example, you know, saying it doesn't necessarily mean lots more unemployment. It just means employed people employed in less productive jobs at lower wages. Um, so I don't want to diminish the impact, but whether it has immediate political impact. This year? Mm, I wonder. Peter, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Simon, Peter mentioned uh, the border, the non apparently non-existent border in the Irish Sea. Uh, it, it is an existing border and that's causing stresses in Northern Ireland as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very severe border. And the fact that um, supermarket chains are having to encounter the regulatory checks, the regulatory paperwork that are required is leading to shortages on uh, supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. Um, and also, I think the big impact, and this is what people will probably feel in both North and South, is that for their kind of Amazon purchases and their online purchases, everyone's at home looking at computers at the moment because of the COVID lockdown. So 
a lot of the online purchasing that you would be engaged in currently, you're going to see additional charges and a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, small traders, artisan traders who ship and sell stuff online would say, listen, it's just not worth my while. And we've seen a raft of, of businesses both in the EU and Ireland and elsewhere in the EU and in the UK say, I'm sorry, it's just it's too expensive for me to ship things when I have to uh, ship an item that maybe I'm getting £50 for and it's costing me £35 for each uh, declaration that I have to sign each way to send it to someone. So businesses are going to say, I'm sorry, it's just not, it's not worth my while. It's too expensive unless you want to pay for it. And the consumer is not going to pay for it. So the trade border that's been created in the Irish Sea is going to push... Uh, back uh, people, consumers, businesses, they're going to retrench back into their own economic zones and, and do business there and not engage with the UK or the European Union, depending on which side of that curtain you're on. Yeah, I was saying to Declan, our producer, before we started, I find this kind of fascinating from another angle. I have my arts and culture editor hat on that, you know, retail binds Ireland and the UK together in all kinds of ways. You know, the you know, to somebody coming here from Europe and walking down Grafton Street, most of the shops that they see, they'd recognise from a from a, from a British high street, and it has kind of always been thus, or it's been thus for a very long time. The idea that that kind of landscape that we operate in, that we live in, retail is such a huge amount of our our cultural imagination. I suppose the idea that that might change in a fundamental way, and we're either going to be living in a in a world which is more local or more European or some combination of the two. It could all kind of in all kinds of impacts, particularly when it comes to it happening both north and south of the border simultaneously. I think that's a really good point. You know, if you think about our our own culture in Ireland, we're so connected with Britain because we all watch BBC and ITV. And equally, I think you can say with if you open up your fridge or open up your cupboard, you probably see all these items uh, that would be coming from Britain, HP sauce, Coleman's mustard. And I think that um, that's going to change and inevitably going to change unless there's going to be a severe um, reworking or re-engineering of supply chains. Um, I was talking to a trade expert and he made the point about the mustard test. You know, he said, well, um, he, this, this, this person is, is, is Dutch and he was making the point, well, I like um, German mustard in my house and my wife likes English mustard. And the point is, well, we're actually going to have to start liking German mustard more than English mustard as a post-Brexit effect. I think that's a really good example of what's going to happen culturally in households. Your tastes are going to have to change because of this new trade border. So while people are reading our stories now going on ferries going here and there and people not being able to ship goods, what it means is when you open your cupboard and you open your fridge, the items in both your cupboard and fridge are going to have to change inevitably because of Brexit. Um, and I think that that's where people are going to see real changes in addition to where they shop and what they buy online. And um, that is a Brexit effect. I don't think it'll happen immediately uh, because a lot of businesses, and I think there's a lot of false hope there amongst businesses, and you often hear them saying, they couldn't possibly allow this to happen. I mean, it's going to work its way through. It has to. And the problem with Brexit is, is it throws up all these borders. Brexit is essentially about creating this new tedium of checks. The single market was this remarkable uh, invention, this creation that uh, collapsed borders all over Europe and allowed goods to flow freely. That's changed. That's gone now. And because we're an island off an island, off mainland Europe, that poses increased problems and special problems for Ireland. And the fact that we rely so heavily on Britain, we ship so much of our goods to and from Britain, particularly food and drink, 
I think that's Brexit's going to be felt in our kitchens, I think, most of all. Mm, very interesting. Actually, I'm more of a Dijon mustard man myself, fulfilling all the all the stereotypes here. <laughs> then you're fine. You're absolutely fine. We, we will, though. We, we, we'll leave it there for the moment. Whatever mustard we like. Um, we'll, thanks very much to Simon and to Peter for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. If you do want to get in touch, we are always delighted from here, here to hear from you. Just mail us at politicspodcast.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.